Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. It's April 3rd, 2018, which means it has been 50 years since Martin Luther King Jr. was in Memphis helping black sanitation workers protest low pay and dangerous, inhumane working conditions. That night, April 3rd, 1968, King delivered a speech about the sanitation strike and his belief that the struggle in which those workers were engaged was central to the achievement of equality, that fair wages and decent working conditions were integral to the idea of dignity and justice. The next day, of course, King was killed. And tomorrow, on the 50th anniversary of his assassination, we're going to talk about what King was doing in Memphis in 1968. And we'll listen to a good portion of that last speech he gave the night before. But today, we want to start the conversation about King and race and economics and equality with an exploration of the concept of race, where it comes from, what it has done to us as Americans, black and white, and how we might think of this concept going forward in a way that brings us closer to the justice that King was talking about in 1968. We're going to start with Jessica Blatt, who is an associate professor of political science at Marymount Manhattan College and author of the book Race and the Making of American Political Science, which explores the impact of race on the founding of American political theory. Jessica Blatt, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So in, in your book, you, you really talk uh, very bluntly about the idea that as American political theory is developing, uh, especially in the 20th century, that, that race is at the center of the things that, that people are thinking and talking about. Um, and I want to I read a little from the introduction uh, to your book. You say that the book contributes to this project by examining how racial ideas figured in a number of settings in which pioneering U.S. political scientists sought to stake out their intellectual territory and define their methods. You go on to say that as political science began to take shape within the academy, leading practitioners put racialist premises at the heart of their accounts of democratic legitimacy and sovereignty. I, I want to start right there and, and have you give us an idea uh, of, of what you're talking about there. What were these racialist premises? Well, absolutely. Thanks. Um, I mean, it, it begins right at the beginning and really centrally. So the, the first graduate department in political science in the U.S., the first sort of place where you could be trained in the U.S. to become a professor of political science, was founded by a guy called John W. Burgess. Mm -hmm. And he believed that American liberty, that free political institutions, that all of the, the freedoms protected by the Constitution were a product of what he called the Teutonic germ of liberty mm -hmm. uh, carried to America by Anglo-Saxons, and that all of those liberties and freedoms were meant for white Americans of Northern European descent and not for everyone else. So it was really a theory of how freedom should be, in fact, limited to whites, uh, it justified ethnic cleansing, it justified Jim Crow, to an extent it justified slavery, and this was the founding principle. Um, later on, you see political scientists very interested, the, the, the 
discipline of international relations is essentially founded on the question of how Americans should treat its colonial possessions. Mm -hmm. And again, you see similar logic at work that whites are suited to freedom and self-government and others are not. So therefore, the American political system, democracy should not be extended to colonial territories, for yeah. example. Yeah. And, and uh, give us a sense of how this stands out in the academy at that time. I mean, there are lots of uh, racialized notions, I think, that form the academy in this, in, this, in this country. Was there something peculiar about the way it was forming uh, political theory and thought? Well, in fact, no, right? Um, in fact, political science is really very conventional in this way. This was the conventional wisdom of American intellectuals of elites with some small exceptions at the time. I mean, I think what makes it worth saying for political science is that it kind of contradicts our story about ourselves. Mm -hmm. This isn't something that we know about ourselves in a way that, uh, say, anthropology or sociology does. Um, and also, I think it really has important and, and not necessarily easy to see consequences for how we continue to talk about politics today. And, and talk about what those, what those consequences look like today. I mean, uh, cast that forward. What, is it, well, what are we dealing with that comes out of this? Uh, right. There's a couple of things. I mean, one is that, and, and this, is, this is sort of getting into a, a bit of... Uh, the history of how political science has dealt with these things. But mm -hmm. we, we tend to think about, or, or the reason that we tend to give for why political science is less interested in race now than some of the other disciplines, mm -hmm. is that we tend to think about race as something that comes outside of politics, comes from outside of politics, that you know affects the way we act politically, but is not somehow political in its origins. Um, and I think that's not true, right? Mm -hmm. I think that our, our racial groupings and our, our racial ideas are very much impacted by politics. How could they not be? We uh, were a slave society at our founding, right? Um, but that this idea was very much generated within political science through engagement with race science, for example, and that... Um, sorry. That... Uh, we, the way pundits, for example, talk about politics is, is shaped by this early engagement uh -huh. with race. Uh -huh. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is uh, Jessica Blatt, an associate professor of political science at Marymount Manhattan College. She's the author of a book called Race and the Making of American Political Science. We are talking about how the concept of race helped shape political theory uh, as it was being formed in this country and what effect that has now. We're talking about that on April 3rd, 2018, uh, the day 50 years ago that Martin Luther King was in Memphis helping black sanitation workers protest low pay and inhumane working conditions uh, as part of his Poor People's Campaign, which was taking shape and unfolding at that time. The next day, of course, Martin Luther King was assassinated. We are talking about uh, race and the concept of race.
years in advance of that anniversary, where it comes from and what it does to us as Americans. If you would love to join the conversation, we would love to have you. Uh, give us a call, 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones, as always. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. If you go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Tell us what you think of the concepts of race, where they come from, uh, what they've done to uh, America, not just in the academy, but in many aspects of American life and especially American culture. Uh, Tell us what you are thinking about today, April 3rd, 2018, 50 years since uh, Martin Luther King delivered his mountaintop speech in Memphis, uh, the last speech he would give before he was assassinated. Uh, the next day. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Um, can we can we talk a little, Jessica, about uh, modern political science and uh, the ways in which uh, the current narrative about race and inequality, which I think is reaching a more heightened tone at this point, um, is it having an effect on the way that political science in the academy uh, is being discussed or framed? Uh, are we seeing sort of an external uh, impact on on what you write about in your book uh, as, as the sort of founding notions of uh, political theory? I mean, certainly. Uh, certainly political scientists are very concerned about uh, the ways that race and Things like racial resentment, which is a category that political scientists use, are shaping politics. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think also we're seeing a real resurgence, and I think this is one of the things that might be most interesting to your readers about this book, is that we're seeing a, a real resurgence of a lot of these early ideas in in both popular culture and in academia now. So, Mm -hmm. for example. Now, I talked about this idea of a Teutonic germ of liberty, right, or the idea that Anglo-Saxons are suited to a certain kind of politics uh, and a certain kind of life. And, you know, the last few years, we've heard a lot about the alt-right, right, Um, which is in many respects a fringe ideology, but it's obviously coming out of the shadows in a lot of ways. And, of course, the alt-right feels that they have a champion or at least a fellow traveler in the president of the United States. Um, And I certainly think that, you know, when we hear President Trump talk about we um, and us, he seems to often be talking about whites or white Americans. Um, And one of the core tenets of the alt-right is this idea of race realism, right, that races are fundamentally different, that they have different destinies, that they ought to be allowed to work out those different destinies on their own. And this is now sort of coming back. Um, similarly, one of the, one of the chapters in, in the book talks about the ways that early political scientists were very interested in eugenics. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. They were interested in, they saw that these race scientists were making all of these claims about different levels of intelligence between different groups, different kinds of capacities that different groups had. And they thought, oh, well, maybe we can figure out that, you know, different groups have uh, more and more likely to be liberal or conservative or, you know, vote or all of these things, right? And now we're seeing these ideas again. Um, so I begin the book with a, a sort of new strain in political science research on genes and politics. Um, and every couple of years, you might see some headlines about, you know, researchers have found the 
gene for conservatism or the gene (laughs) for, uh, one of them is the gene for Machiavellianism. That's my (laughs) favorite. Um, And just kind of in general, I think we're seeing a lot more willingness to embrace these biological theories about social life. Right. Uh, I think a lot of your readers may have read the the David Reich um, op-ed in the Times mm-hmm. the other day about how you know we need to admit that there are differences between groups and that they're genetic in origin. Right. This is this, this is this thing that sort of comes back over and over. Yes. Um, and one of my my favorite writers, Stephen Jay Gould, has pointed out that these moments of, of biological determinism seem to correlate with decreases in social generosity generally, right, with moments of reaction. Um, And I think if you look at the book, you see the ways that these ideas, they they just keep returning. They don't want to go away. And they tend to, it it, it helps to make them seem a little less reasonable, right, when you see that people are coming up with the same ideas with slightly different bases over and over and over. You think perhaps, um, you know, the ideas might be an end in themselves rather than stemming from from the realities that people find around them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Also, a little later in the show, we're going to expand on what Jessica Blatt was just talking about there, this idea of biology and race versus race as a social construct. Uh, we're going to talk with Mindy Fullylove, who is a professor of urban policy and health at the New School in New York, uh, about her work on what the difference is between race as biology and race as a social construct. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. But again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Tanya in Detroit. Tanya, welcome to Detroit Today. And good morning, and thank you. I listen to your program all the time and enjoy it immensely. Thank you. I just wanted to ask your guest, good morning to your guest. I'm going to ask your guest if her book touches on and what I find is a noticeable absence of the discussion of constantly keeping white people off the hook. God created you. Okay, God created you. You have yellow roses, red roses, lilacs, different colors. You got jellyfish and trout. So to have a problem with something that you have no control over and by all definitions and all socioeconomics or whatever is a blessing. Mm -hmm. You have to start targeting people who are not taking responsibility for ill thinking. Yeah. So that is my question. Why is it that the philosophers and the psychologists and everybody seems to, not everybody, of course, there's no absolute, <laughs> the focus seems to be on analyzing the fact that it's okay to tell greedy control freaks no. No matter what you have in terms of the biological things, is a different, the superior person that claims that superior is always that race or that color, or that dictator, what have you, but to not address the gullibility of a certain group of people who have less melanin than others. Hmm. I have a problem with that not being looked at. There may be a biological connection then, because there's somebody benefiting (laughs) from this constant racism being allowed to 
right. take place. So why don't you look at who are the beneficiaries of it? Yeah, Tanya, I think that's a great that's a great question. Uh, it's a great point. I think uh, the the book here that we're talking about it goes a long way. I think to assigning some of that responsibility. But I'll let uh, Jessica Blatt, Blatt uh, address what you're talking about there. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you said a lot of things there, so I'll, I'll respond to, to some of it. I think maybe one of one of the things that you're getting at is that you know, these ideologies of white supremacy and about racial difference are deeply self-serving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? They justify those being in power having power. They justify excluding the people you don't want. They justify not sharing resources with people. They justify inequality. They say, well, it's not, you know. It's not my fault those people don't have as much as I do, right? Um, my my uh, One of my teachers, uh, Adolf Reed Jr., has, I think, a wonderful definition of ideology. Uh, and he says it's what harmonizes what you believe with what, what gets you paid. <laughs> um, and I think racial ideology is a very clear example of that. Sure, sure. Uh, Tanya, again, thanks very much for the call uh, and the questions. Uh, Maggie on Facebook says, white psychologists developed race to subject people of color. Their racist studies were taught across the world and gave the okay to slavery because blacks weren't seen as humans. Maggie, thanks very much uh, for that comment uh, as well. And, And Jessica Blatt, that does get, again, to this idea of uh, the purposeful, not just invention of the concept of race, but the purposeful use of that concept in sort of building the infrastructure of inequality. And, and of course, in your book, you uh, are detailing how that infrastructure unfolds in, in the realm of political science. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really the, the, the history of, of slavery and race science is incredibly illuminating. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you really see is that, you know, up until there start being serious challenges, political challenges to slavery, you don't really have scientific explanations for racial inequality. Um, you have lots of, of justifications of it, but they're not these ideas that we are somehow biologically different mm-hmm. racially mm-hmm. really comes out of the defense of slavery. Um, and that in these moments when there are challenges to racial hierarchy, you see reaction. And often that, 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 that reaction come, takes form in the scientific community in terms of these, of these racial theories. Right. Uh, let's go to Aaron. Aaron in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Hey, Aaron. Excellent topic. Thank you. Okay, just food for thought. Bear me out. Uh when you talk about the political uh, connection uh, to uh, to uh, uh, racial uh, disparity, you, you had a everything is. If we look back in history, everything is based on uh, finances or uh, men being able to control other men for different reasons. And so, if we just wipe all of the uh, uh, color off the top of it, what it comes down to is what is the true motivation behind it is uh, profit and control. And because you can create truth when you have enough power, if you have power over somebody, you can 
you can make truth by uh, uh, forcing someone to accept whatever you say as being true. Mm-hmm. And so that's why there's no need for a scientific proof of, uh, of a disparity of the races, because when one race has more power, uh, bigger guns or bigger sticks, then they get to say that you're less than, and then they create that, and then when you build a system around that, and I'm, I'm leading to capitalism. Mm-hmm. When you look at how capitalism permeates our history period, not only in this country but worldwide, when it's about capitalizing, when it's about having power over someone else or some other group for the purpose of profit, then you can start to see why race is necessary or racial equality or inequality is necessary to, to be promoted because it continues a fund flow or a profit sure, flow for a certain group. Yeah. Aaron, Aaron, uh, great point. And, and I really appreciate your calling uh, and making that. Uh, Jessica Blatt, uh, a couple of chapters in the book, I think, um, uh, touch on this this connection between uh, uh, political theory and and economics. Uh, one is the the chapter I think on Jim Crow, of course, which mm-hmm. is is itself uh, an economic system designed to preserve uh, wealth and resources for for people of of lighter lighter skin color. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's there was there's a lot of justification of the status quo mm-hmm. happening in early political science. I think it's easier to see sometimes when it's a little distant from the present. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a bit of a cautionary tale for those of us today um, that we need to be careful that we are not simply naturalizing or justifying the status quo. Um, also, I mean, I, I wanted to respond to something else the the caller just said, uh-huh. which is you know that. It, that there's a sort of effective power going on here, right? That you don't have to, you know, you can you can impose that those in power can impose their will on everyone else. And I think one of the reasons that race science has had so much salience in the U.S. actually is because we are in a democratic system and we do have a certain amount of contestation around these ideas, mm-hmm. right? And science has been a way to try to shut that down. I think, right, to take these questions outside of politics. So if we are kind of fundamentally different, right, um, so think think about the bell curve, Uh right, uh Charles Murray. His argument was inequalities between whites and blacks are inequalities of of intelligence, and therefore all of these attempts to correct them via great society programs, via welfare, via affirmative action are misguided, Right. So I think this is one of the reasons I get really worried when I see things, you know, this sort of general embrace of biological determinism, even really innocent things about, you know, now people are really excited that they can swab their cheeks and send it off to a company and, and find out who they really are. You know, I've, I've got Irish ancestry, and that must explain my love of potatoes or why I've always wanted to visit <laughs> Dublin, right? Um, and it's innocent enough, and, it, and it's understandable, especially, I think, for African-Americans who may not know much about their family's origins. Um, but at the same time, this idea that your essential nature can be found in your genes somehow, or that different kinds of bodies are prone to different kinds of cultural political tendencies has a pretty dark history in our country and <clears throat> is particularly powerful in this kind of contested realm of, of democracy, right, mm-hmm. where there are a, a lot of different ideas circulating in, in politics and a lot of uh, you know, anti-racist ideas also out there. So I think we need to 
be a little cautious about uh, about all the excitement around genomics and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you about the Academy today uh, and diversity, which I think is a is a, a very different concept uh, from uh, racial justice. And uh, yes. we, we could spend a long time talking about the differences there. But but I, but I I I really want to get at this this question of how important. Diversity is, and and I want you to talk a little about the struggles to achieve that diversity. Uh, University of Michigan, which is a place that I studied pol- uh, political mm-hmm. science uh, in the in the late eighties and early nineties, the, the department there doesn't look a whole lot different than it did uh, when I was a student there. Which meant that that most uh, you know most of the professors were were white and, and overwhelmingly so. If, if I go around the country, I'm I'm imagining that I won't find uh, very, very different uh, examples. Uh, and I'm wondering what that, what that has to do, I guess, with this history um, and, and whether political science is, again, is standing out from other disciplines in terms of uh, that diversity in, in the academy. Uh, yeah, no, that's a hugely important question. Um, and I think it's true overall in the social sciences that... Uh, we are not nearly as sort of racially representative as we ought to be. It's mm-hmm. uh, you know overwhelmingly white. Mm-hmm. Um, political science is actually uh, worse than, than the rest of than I think economics might be worse than we are. But hmm. um, compared to say sociology and anthropology, we are whiter and uh-huh. more male, particularly at the senior ranks. Um, and absolutely, I think and and what, this is something that I saw sort of throughout the history of our discipline was that. Um, it has not necessarily been the first choice or the most welcoming for people who want to challenge the status quo. Uh-huh. I think uh-huh. often people who study political science uh, do so with the thought that they will be the ones who are governing <laughs> and they need to learn how. Um, and this is obviously a, a very broad stroke and it does not categorize the whole discipline, but I do think there is a sort of uh, a kind of core ethos that might discourage um, a sort of more oppositional stance uh-huh, within uh-huh. within political science. Uh-huh. Um, and I think in some ways, people who are critical of the racial status quo, et cetera, um, might find more congenial homes elsewhere, might not find themselves quite as, as drawn to the discipline. So uh-huh. I think that presents a problem for us. I mean, it also has to do with the structure of the academy. People stay in these jobs for a really long time, and they tend to mentor and hire people who they feel comfortable with. And uh, I think that we find that they tend to mentor and hire people who come from similar backgrounds than they do, um, and also that don't make them feel bad about themselves by challenging their core assumptions. So I think if we're going to solve these problems, we have to be kind of willing to be a little bit uncomfortable yeah. in ways that I, I haven't really seen us embrace. Yeah, no, that is not the way uh, the academy tends to tends to work. Uh, Jessica Blatt, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marymount Manhattan College and author of Race and the Making of American Political Science. Thanks very much for being with us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me.
Up next, we're going to continue our exploration of race as a concept with a professor who has studied the ties between race as a biological construct and as a social imperative. And of course, don't forget, if you miss any of today's conversation, you don't have to miss out entirely. You can go to iTunes or wherever it is you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. We're going to talk more about the man in his final days tomorrow on the program. But today, we're exploring the concept of race. How fundamental is race to our understanding of our society, our culture as Americans, and ourselves? We've heard the question asked, does race even exist? It certainly exists as a social construct. We know that. But does it exist biologically? Assume biological differences between races have been used and weaponized in America almost from the beginning. Think of Jimmy the Greek talking about uh, the natural body shape that made black people great athletes. And the more coded language we hear today when sports commentators call black players naturally talented or gifted and refer to white athletes as smart or hardworking. It's the way that we talk about people of different races that demonstrates that we believe we are biologically quite different. But are we? Joining us now to talk more about the difference between race as a biological construct and race as a social construct is Mindy Fullilove. She is the professor of urban policy and health at the New School in New York, a board-certified psychiatrist who explores the ties between environment and mental health. Mindy Fullilove, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, I I think uh, I want to start with uh, um, a a New York Times uh, science article, a geneticist who argues that populations that have distributions of genes that we shouldn't overlook. Uh, It says, quote, I don't think that means we have to declare that there are races, but it's important to note about isolation of groups and how evolution works. Uh, I want to start there. Um, uh, This idea of biological race, uh, it it comes back over and over again that, that people want to uh, insist that it exists, insist that it matters. Uh, your work is about the difference between that and the social construct. Uh, I want to start with you talking about that. Well, that geneticist ends that article, which is really worth reading. Mm-hmm. It's a you know, series of thoughts that are very well considered. But he ends it by saying men and women are different biologically in a much more clearly defined way probably than any other distinctions. And that doesn't mean that we should oppress women. Um, so men have XY chromosomes, women have double X. And, and those are distinct biological differences. But we've learned that, you know, women can fight in the army, women can be doctors, uh, men can be homemakers. So uh, these biological differences don't have to determine life chances. So uh, 
I think that's a profound point he's making. And he's also trying to say, look, populations differ in the frequencies of genes. Mm-hmm. So that's an established fact. And again, that doesn't mean that we have to say, oh, therefore there are races. It's a too great of a leap. Um, and But even if we decided, okay, what we want to do with populations is say they are races, which would be stupid. But let's say we did decide that. Then similarly to gender, we have to say, okay, that doesn't mean they're unequal just because they're different. Difference doesn't have to mean unequal. Right. So so part of this is, I, I think historically, you know, why did we get so excited about difference and what did we use it for? And, and, that, and that's the big question. And we know that the use of difference, racial difference, certainly in the United States, grew up around justifying chattel slavery. Right. So it's a it's a completely heinous project, just chattel slavery. And you know, how do you do that to another human being? It says, Oh, I know the answer. They're not human beings. So part of the you know, is a long convoluted hundred years of figuring out why it's okay to have chattel slavery between sixteen nineteen and seventeen oh five, more or less. But uh but they invent a lie. And, and that's what we have to get out of because we're really stuck in that lie. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I find really difficult about this subject uh, as an African-American is uh, this, this I think, uh, narrative tension, I guess I'll, I'll call it, between the idea that uh, race does not exist as a scientific uh, truth, right? That, 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 that there, is no, there is no such thing biologically as race, but that it has shaped so much of the life of this nation and and many other nations around the planet for so long uh, that you're almost you're almost uh, uh, foolish, I guess, to argue that point because it is what we live with. It is how we live and it is the way we relate to each other and to uh, institutions uh, in this country and that it seems impossible that we will ever get to a place where that's not so. I wonder whether that that tension is something that plays out in in your work. When you say, just can I just? I feel like Bill Clinton. What do you mean by it? <laughs> <laughs> this tension between the idea that there isn't really a a, a notion of race biologically, but that it's so it's so uh, ingrained in our culture and society, and and that it's almost foolish to, to to try to sort of say, well, there isn't race. Of course, there is, but uh, the way uh, the, the way in which it's been used. Uh, sort of biologically, falsely, uh, is is something you want to attack, something you want to push back against. Well, of course, there's a, a long history of of false beliefs and even lies that uh, had to be tackled for a long time uh-huh. before people got with the truth. So, you know, the people who said the world was square, right, and they... Um, made Galileo recount mm-hmm. recant his findings, but now we know that the Earth is round, and we've seen it from space. And we couldn't have gone to space if we didn't get with the fact that the Earth is round. So there's, there's lots of examples of that, of um, finding that the truth, that what we think is a lie, mm-hmm. or knowing that what we think is a lie, and giving up the lie. As a psychiatrist, obviously, I, I work with people, people all the time, 
want to believe in a lie or they don't know it's a lie. So right. the process of getting people to have the courage to say the truth it is very much a core part of my discipline. Think of people who are addicted and don't want to admit it. But they can't get well until they admit, on some level, that they have a problem with addiction. So uh, that our society is addicted to this lie is makes perfect sense to me that they can also give it up. And we can't get well until we get with the truth. The yeah. truth shall set you free. It's something I firmly believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Mindy Fullalove. She is a professor of urban policy and health at the New School in New York, a, a board-certified psychiatrist who explores the ties between environment and mental health. We are talking about the difference between the concept of race in biological terms and the concept of race in social terms. The idea that the difference uh, between those two things is one of the tensions that plays out in the conversations about race in America. We are talking about this on April 3rd, uh, the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's uh, work with uh, sanitation workers in Memphis, the 50th anniversary of his mountaintop speech, which he delivered the night of April 3rd. And of course, the next day, April 4th, he was assassinated. Tomorrow, we're going to talk a lot about that legacy in the context of race uh, and racial progress. Uh, today, we are talking about the concept of race, where it comes from, what it does to us as Americans, uh, and how we might move more to a space of racial justice than where we are now. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Tell us what you think of the concept of race. Where did you learn the concept of race? Who was the first person who told you that people are different, that people who look different might be indeed different. Uh, did you learn about race in the context of superiority or inferiority? And who was it who told you about those things? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Brian on Facebook says, is race an easy way of saying not like me, not like us. Not like me is an important driver along many lines, but racial traits like skin color, language, accent, body shape are visible traits that we use to predetermine whether someone is like us or not. It's what we know about someone first. Before we know their name, their economic condition, their education level, their skills, their intellect, their sense of humor, all kinds of things. Post-racial would, therefore, mean that we can skip these prejudgments and meet people based on the, quote, content of, the content of their character. We're not there yet. Uh, that's a really interesting explication of the, of the sort of uh, ease with which race as a social construct, I think, uh, enters our minds and, and our interpersonal uh, relationships. Uh, Mindy Fuller, I'm, I'm curious what your reaction would be to what Brian is saying there. Well, uh, you know, one of the things um, that uh, in, in my work in addiction psychiatry, I've run across in, in working with people in 12-step fellowships is people say, um, well, don't compare first, identify first. This is very important for people that are trying to get into a treatment program like 12-step. 
because if they focus on the contrast, they're going to say, oh, I'm not as bad as that, or these people couldn't really understand me, and they're going to leave. They're not going to stay in treatment. Whereas if they can find something they have in common, they're going to stay in treatment, and the odds that they're going to get better go way up. And I think that this actually is a handy thing to have all the time. So I'm looking at somebody else and saying they're not me, I, this is good. It's good to be able to differentiate that there's two people in the room. This is fundamental thing in mental health. There's mm-hmm. two people in the room. It's not just you. But when you then look at that person, what do you have in common with him? And um, it's, it's just a great experiment to try. So sort of, you know, as a old black woman, I was once talking to this young white man and I was trying this exercise of like, what can I identify with this guy about? And within about three seconds, we had found all kinds of things we had in common. And it's just a fun, it's a fun way to start being in the world. And this, I think, is, helps us get to Dr. King's, the content of his character, um, content of her character. How do, we, how do we identify as opposed to compare? Right. Racism is all about comparing, and it's not comparing for anything positive. It's comparing to create less than. It's comparing to say that person is not fully human, and I am. So it's an evil and pernicious kind of comparison. So identification is, is the healthy alternative. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Mindy Fullove about the concept of race. Stay with us, and stay with us on the phone. Steve in Windsor, Barry in Roseville, Shannon in Ypsilanti, and Larry in Greenville. We will get to you when we come back. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Mindy Fullalove. She's a professor of urban policy and health at the New School in New York, a board-certified psychiatrist who explores the ties between environment and mental health. We are talking about the construct of race, the biological construct, and the social construct. What are the relationships? between the two of them, and how do we get to a place where race is not used the way it is now to make some people less than others. If you want to join the conversation, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Shannon in Ypsilanti. Shannon, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Uh huh. Go ahead. So I was just calling in. We were, you all were talking about the first time you realized that there was even a thing called race. Mm-hmm. So I just remember back to when I was about eight years old, and my father asked my sister if she would ever marry a black man. And she's older than me, and she said if I loved him. She was 10 years old. And then he asked me the same thing, and I said, if I loved him, I just kind of followed suit. So that was the really the first recollection I ever had about ever thinking that I was different yeah. from anybody else. And, and what do you think your dad was was getting at there with the question? I I think that he wanted the answer no. <laughs> he wanted you to <laughs> and, say no, right? Yeah, and um, and so ever since that moment, I just I think that that kind of springboarded me to make sure I never reacted that way to race and that I was like 
extremely tolerant and very conscious of it. Yeah. Yeah. Shannon, thanks very much uh, for the call and that and that recollection. Um, uh, Mindy Fuller, you know, what, what she's saying there reminds me, again, of, of the teaching, the sort of intergenerational teaching that goes on uh, with regard to race and the, just the idea of race. And, and that's a very, uh, uh, I guess, passive aggressive almost uh, uh, way of, of doing that. But I don't think there's any question about the kind of message that was being imparted there. Yeah. You remember that old song from South Pacific, you have to be taught to hate? <laughs> right. Yes. Rogers yes. and Hammerstein, who were having a big moment with uh, this being an anniversary of Oklahoma. Of Oklahoma, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, again, Shannon, thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Larry in Greenville. Larry, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen, and thank you for taking my call. I'm a regular listener, and I love your show. Great. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to share with you, uh, I'm a retired uh, teacher from uh, rural West Michigan. Um, I taught at uh, community college here, and I taught a a class on on, uh, interpersonal communications, and we did a unit on cultural diversity. And one of the one of the things I did was I, I would I would look out across the classroom, and of course, rural West Michigan, we all kind of look the same. Mm-hmm. And I would say uh, everybody here who identifies themselves as white, raise your hand. And of course, virtually everyone in the class would raise their hand. And I'd say, okay, now open your journals to a nice, clean, fresh page, and they'd all flip open and pick up a pen, and I'd say, put your pens down, and I want you to just rest your arm on top of that piece of paper and look at it. Uh-huh. And I'd say, now, how many of you look look at the color of your arm and look at the color of the paper? Uh-huh. How many of you would still say that your skin is white? <laughs> right. Uh- that's and I would get maybe maybe one or two jokers who would still raise their <laughs> hand at that point. Right. Uh, then I would pull out some paper that I just picked up down at the copy room, some, just some different shades of uh, of brown, and I'd hold it up and I'd say, you know, most of us, most of our skin colors are going to match these yeah. because we're all brown. Right. Hmm. We're all shades of brown. Yeah. Larry, that's we, a, that's a great all, story. Um, that's a fascinating experiment. Uh, it, it reminds me, though, Mindy, full of, of uh, something that a friend of mine said last week when we were on a panel discussion talking uh, about race. Uh, he, he said that, that in America and in, in social constructs, Whiteness really is just about the absence of something else. In other words, I'm not Latino. I'm not black. I'm not uh, Middle Eastern. It, it really is this idea of uh, of purity, uh, of of not being part of some other uh, uh, some other category that is deemed uh, inferior. Um, I I would agree with that. That's how that's how they constructed it. Mm-hmm. And you know, people always say to me, "Well, you know, it, was this sort of by accident? Did they actually really mean it when they developed it 
um, um, the historians that look into this are actually uh, very clear that people sat down and figured this out very consciously. Mm-hmm. So they talk now about Bacon's Rebellion in the 1600s, a, a big rebellion by uh, white indentured servants and black slaves. And it was against the power structure in Virginia. And they became very afraid that if the, these two groups really got together, and they were very friendly. There were marriages between the two groups. A lot of, there was a lot of friendships across the two groups. They identified as being oppressed. Said so if, if these people really start to fight us, we're going to lose because they outnumber us. And one of the things they did was they gave the indentured servants different punishments from what they gave to the black slaves hmm. to start to drive, drive a wedge. And we, you know, now we talk all the time about politicians and their use of wedge issues. Mm-hmm. How do they drive groups apart? Mm-hmm. So, so this idea that if you're white, you're different. You know, this sort of compare, compare, and you know, what you want to do is end up on top of somebody. Um, so it, it's sort of also like that story: the boss yells at the guy, and the guy yells at his wife, and the wife yells at the kid, and the kid kicks the dog. Mm-hmm. So it ripples all the way down the line. Everybody's better than somebody. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, this is this is vicious, and when we talk about making a democratic society, it actually is like the poison. It's toxic to democracy to have people trying to be different from each other. Yeah. To make a democracy, you need to have everybody feel like, oh, we're in this together. Uh, let's go to Barry in Roseville. Barry, uh, we've got about a minute left, but uh, I wanted to get you in here. Yeah, hey, Steve, an intriguing yeah. topic. Uh, mm-hmm. Quickly. Uh, I was at the University of Michigan as an undergraduate in the 80s, probably a few years before you, but I had to take a, a science, uh, natural science uh, class to satisfy the distribution requirement. Mm-hmm. So I ended up taking anthropo- anthropology as a science, and we were taught as doctrine in that class back then, and, and I apologize for the terms I'm going to use, but this is as it was taught to us. Some might find it offensive, mm-hmm. but we were taught that there are only three races in the world, um, and they were categorized as Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and Negroid, mm-hmm. and that was it. And and I think it's an interesting dichotomy from a biological or anthropological standpoint that we, sh- we start with that, and then we extrapolate from that, you know, how do we think of race in the United States? Right, right. And from a constitutional law perspective, the only point I have is I think you have to treat black Americans or African Americans from a constitutional standpoint as far different from other so-called races as we define them sociologically because of institutional slavery in the United States. So when you have somebody who might be a Muslim from India who might actually be a Caucasoid or a Caucasian, claiming that their rights not to be distributed against are equal to that of black. Barry, Barry, that's a great point. I'm not cutting you off because I don't want to hear more, but we're running out of time, and I want to give Mindy Fullalove a chance to, to respond to that. I've got about 40 seconds left, Mindy. (laughs) <laughs> this conversation is great. Yeah. And, and the bottom line, because we're just having this conversation in honor of Dr. King, is that our striving has to be to recognize each other's humanity and to build a democracy based on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's our similarities and not our differences that lead us to having a great society. Yeah. Okay, Mindy Fillolove, Professor of Urban Policy and Health at the New School in New York. Thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. Mm -hmm. It's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow when we will talk about the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination. I hope you will join us for that. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.